The following is for information purposes only and should not be used as the basis of an investment decision. This is not investment advice. This episode is made possible by Progressive Equity Research, providing freely available, engaging investment research and opportunities to hear from a wide range of small and mid-cap UK listed companies. For today's episode, I'm joined by private investor Mark Atkinson, host of the Desert Island Investor podcast, for a conversation with Mark Smithson, the founder and CEO of Mark's Electrical. Mark's Electrical is an AIM-listed online retailer of household electrical products, providing nationwide next-day delivery for a wide range of household appliances. Mark's straightforward approach to his business belies an enduring work ethic, deep domain knowledge, and a commitment to business efficiency based on common sense and the application of technology. In today's episode, we follow the story of an entrepreneur who started selling reconditioned, second-hand gas cookers in the 1980s to become today CEO of a listed business with a shareholding worth over £60 million. Mark talks openly about the challenges he's faced and the mistakes he has made. However, armed with a never-give-up attitude, he sees his business as well-positioned to grow market share in the competitive space for household appliances. Mark epitomizes raw entrepreneurial spirit, and his story has lessons for us all. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Mark Smithson. Mark, thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start by asking you about the origins of Mark's Electrical. Where did it start for you and how did you get into this business? That was quite a while ago. I actually started February the 2nd, 1987. It was a Monday, but just rewinding before that, I used to build bikes in my dad's garage at the side of the house. So I'd buy them out of the paper and clean them up, rebuild all the derailleurs and brakes, etc., and then sell them for a profit. I was trained to be a surveyor, a, a local building contractor, and I decided, you know, I'd seen all these people driving around in nice cars, and I thought, wow, how do I get one of those? And I was a bit bored being a surveyor. I saw a friend who was doing very well, clean up second-hand cookers. His dad became a millionaire through doing it. But you know what, that looks quite straightforward. So I sold my car, bought a van, an old JCW335W, an old Ford Transit van, bought that out of the paper off some uh, travellers down in Northamptonshire, and off I went and got myself a caustic soda tank, went out buying old cookers out of the paper, let's say five or ten pounds, and bring them back in my van, strip them all down in my dad's garage at the side of the house, clean them up, put them in the caustic soda tank, get them looking concourse, that was back then in the day when, you know, a new cook was £500. So you could start buying and selling them out of the paper, so £120, £130, that sort of level. So you could make a lot of money. That's good margin. Yeah, I wish we were making that now. That's how I sort of got going in the thought process. Then I opened a shop. So I got a £1,000 overdraft facility from the bank. And they weren't very keen on lending me that anyway. That was the HSBC. Back then. Well, Midland Bank. Midland Bank. I think yeah. I was an employee of Midland Bank in those days, yeah. Well, you'd have probably lent me a bit more money, maybe, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of how I got going. So I, I then opened this shop on February the 2nd, 1987. A few people said, oh, I don't know how you're gonna, who's going to buy anything off you. And 
And terrified there as a 21-year-old on a Monday morning. Anyway, someone came and bought a cooker and I made, you know, 50 pounds profit out of that. So I was, you know, over the moon. I was only making, before I packed my job in as a surveyor, I was making, coming out with about 65 pounds a week. So I was quite impressed with that. I actually made 200 pounds profit that week. So I tripled my normal week's earnings. So obviously you're a millionaire overnight, aren't you? That was the thought process. So I just kept on working hard and, you know, I'd, I'd work in the shop from half eight till half five, shut the shop, then I'd go and do my deliveries after work. And all the time I'd be cleaning these cookers up in the back. My dad worked for Electrolux, so he managed to stand guarantor for me with Electrolux for an account so I could buy damaged products, which was very good of him. So that helped so I could then buy a couple of thousand pounds worth of dented Electrolux washing machines or fridge freezers and sell them quite a bit cheaper than the market price, which was considerably more, you know, Brand new fridge freezers back then were say three or four hundred pounds minimum. So there was a big gap between the second hand market. There's a big void there, so you could operate in that. And then I moved into that, pushed on hard with selling graded. I left the second hand products alone. Then I could see it was easier. I was going to build my business more quickly by selling graded. Okay. Moved into new, pushed on with the new, and I had one shop, then three shops, then five shops. Then a friend of mine in 2004 said, I think you should have a website, Mark. I didn't even have a computer at the time, so I had to quickly get over a computer. He built me this basic website, which was actually called 365electrical.com back in the day. I focused predominantly on premium product on the, okay. on the website. You know, we used to do Maytag and Marner, big Whirlpool, American fridge freezers, Falcon, Mercury, a lot of big high-end products. So I really got used to selling premium appliances. At the time, you might get a sale for one in Glasgow and then you get one in Penzance. So you had to figure out how you're going to deliver it and make some money. It wasn't easy, but I used to run it all off an Excel spreadsheet. Tiring, but hard work and great fun. I've always enjoyed working hard. I thought, I don't want to go up against Argos because they've got, you know, 500 shops or whatever they had at the time all around the UK. So I'll just try and sell premium product, which was your Smeg products, you know, and the Amana Maytag, et cetera, that type of Bosch product, Neff Siemens. So even Gaggenau at the time I used to sell as well. Can you just tell us what your secret ingredient is? What is it that you think that makes marks so different? If you rewind back, I mean, I was a bit foolish with hindsight. I never actually had any partners. I never wanted a partner. I always had this thing in my head that I needed to buy everything. I needed to own the building I was in. I didn't want to rent it. I didn't want to rent any vans or lease. I just wanted to pay cash for them. I wanted to run my business like that with no one else interfering with it. So I'd invested in software engineers, a couple of engineers at the time, in 2005. And that's what drove the business. So there was a lot of tech at the back of this business, which is what helped me and enabled me to build the business. Normally, the people one meets running businesses that say the key differentiator is technology are computer people, technologists, who, listen to yourself, you didn't have a computer when someone suggested to you, you should have a website. That seems quite remarkable to me. I mean, you must have been a pretty convincing person if presumably you say, well, what's a website? I don't know. Maybe I think I might have done at that time. That's a very good friend of mine, Christian Ecke. It was Chris who actually helped me. He used to run Leicester University, the computing department, and his specialist subject was robotics and AI. And having that level of intelligence of true robotics and true AI, 
built in and integrated in your business is a massive benefit. When we floated, Joe, we didn't go on and on and on about it. So, you know, you hear so many baloney stories from these tech <laughs> companies telling their investors yeah. a load of rubbish. We've seen yeah, yeah. That, that we almost shied away from it. And every time the bankers were saying, well, hey, you need to mention more about the tech side of it. So, it's all, you know, we don't want to try and go down the road of telling everyone we've got 100 robots in the back loading lorries. It's rubbish. We don't do that. But what we have got is a very slick back office system, mega tracking systems for tracking the prices in the whole of the market. And that's what enables us to be very reactive and responsive. And the buying is very, very easy. A lot of the buying is just done through EDI. I could sit here. I could almost do all the ordering, still myself, doing nearly $100 million a year with all on my own if I wanted to. But, you know, you don't want to be doing it all yourself. And you have to hand over to people partially. Not totally, I may add, well, by the way. You always got to keep your finger on everybody and make sure that they're not just sitting there telling you they've done it, which is what's great when you've got good IT systems. You've got your name over the door and yeah. you own over 70% of the company. I'm a retail investor, so that's a major criteria for me. You're the founder and the CEO. You know, we talk about skin in the game, but you appear to have an arm and a leg as well. You've yeah. talked about your involvement and it's all consuming. Is this a business that can survive without you? Well, I've actually done myself out of the job, Mark. I've almost got nothing to do. I'm being a bit facetious when I say that, but I've not got anything near the level of amount of work I have to do. Now, I've not got a report that needs completing every day. I've not got anything that specifically has to be done every day. Everybody else has got their roles in the company that we've split out and handed off, and it just works exceptionally well, you know. If they were away, if I had to step in and it was an Armageddon position, I could pick up the reins again. But we've got people in these roles now who are better than me at what I was doing. I never thought it was brilliant. I just thought it was okay. And then we've got other people who you bring in from other manufacturers who show you a better way of doing what you were doing, you know, can make you more margin. I mean, we talk about delegating as an art, and I think it is. Is that something that came from yourself, or did you look for other people to help you on that process? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's just something you just pick up and you learn as you go along, to be honest. You're not born with that expertise. You just see and you pick out the elements in people's expertise and extra knowledge they might have at certain aspects of anything, whether it be buying or accounts and who are better with, you know, which particular accounts and who gets on better. It's just basically using your common sense and working out what's best for the business. People don't have to be sat in a particular pigeonhole you can manoeuvre them into other areas in your business. And it's seeing where people's strengths are. Because some people are numbers people. Some are people's people. They just want to sit talking to people. And it's just how you build up rapports with your suppliers and, and within the team. It's picking the right area for all these people to go into. But not letting go too much if you're not careful on certain areas. But when you do let go, you've got to make sure that you're keeping an eye on them, which is why... Josh, our CFO, is brilliant because he has everybody KPI, which is superb. So you can check reports and make sure that people are doing what they're doing. Obviously, the sales figures in your bank account tell you that, but as you get bigger, you need a bit more intelligence than that. You touched on the early introduction of internet and e-commerce. How difficult is it to keep up with the ever-changing speed of technology in the marketplace? Well, for us, it's probably easier because we're coming from a small base mark. You know, the bigger competition, you know, they look at the likes of Curry's and John Lewis. I mean, you know, AO is a great business and, you know, they've had the challenges, but, you know, that was built on 
tech and marketing, and it's a, a superb business. And they grew, whereas the likes of Currys and John Lewis, John Lewis in particular, have shined away. They've stopped doing installation now on, apparently I was told on Friday, I've checked on quite a few things. What's the frontier of technology that your guys are grappling with at the moment? We've only got a single site. We haven't got 25 warehouses dotted all around the country. So sure. our overheads are very, very low in the first place. That makes such a massive differentiator to all our competition. The reason we make a good profit is because we've got very low overheads. It's very easy to manage. And we don't need complicated software to manage outlying additional warehouses and other sites. It's very tricky. You get the reverse flow when you're selling with e-commerce. So to track your stock for them must be very, very difficult. And to keep evolving your business when you've got three or 400 stores and you've got all these outlying warehouses, it's exceptionally difficult to track everything. So we're coming from a small base, so it's easy for us to drive our revenue and profits as well at the same time. But this business is not all about revenue at all costs. If it was, we could have grown quite a bit quicker than the rate that we are growing at. We made it very clear when we floated on the market that we weren't just going to be another company selling online that just grew the revenue and didn't make any money. We wanted to make some profit, and that's what this business is all about. All right, it will take a little bit longer. Not lots longer, but it will take longer because we want to make a profit. I'm guessing your Trustpilot yep. score is a very valuable marketing asset. From when I had a look last week, you had 42,000 reviews, 90% of which are five-star, which is an incredible achievement. Do you incentivize your customers to no. leave a review? I used to. I used to be ringing them up, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. I think where I would go first would probably be Trustpilot. Yeah, it's a really key part of the business. I mean, everyone goes on about great customer service. You know, we actually have got great customer yeah. service. And you see the odd review where people say, oh, I tried ringing, I couldn't get through. Well, I'm looking now. So far, we have missed zero phone calls this morning. If people say they can't get through, just for the record, it's a load of baloney. You might have to wait a minute, which I do apologise about. But in the grand scheme of things, I think we're exceptionally good and we look to improve it. You know, we're not resting on the laurels. It's so important that people can get through. And we do mess things up. We get things wrong. We might pick the wrong product, deliver it to the customer or the wrong customer even. You know, things yeah. happen. Sure. You know, we're sending out massive volumes of units every day. There is going to be a problem because you've got human intervention, haven't you? Well, I spent, uh, Mark did as well, I spent a career selling for a living consumer products, but my best relationships, the most enduring ones, were ones where things went wrong and yeah. you could show you cared because you put yeah. it right or showed empathy at least and helped things from their perspectives. Nothing runs perfectly, does it? No, I mean, but you feel really good when you do solve a problem, don't you? It's, sure. it's rewarding. It's frustrating when you mess things up. Sometimes, you know, you know, we had a lady whose cooker was faulty when we tried to install it because we've got our own installation team now. Unfortunately, it was faulty on installation. It had been damaged, so we had to come back. And the, the jumping around wanting it done the same day. Well, you can't do that. Unfortunately, you've got to come back, pick the new one, and go out the next day and solve the problem. You can only do what you can do. There's a limit, isn't there? On what of course. You can actually, physically do. We're all polite people. We all try our hardest. We want our customers to come back. It's the best form of advertising, isn't it? Why would you ever want to upset a customer? Never, ever do we want to do that. We don't ever intentionally do it, but we do make mistakes. And it's what you do about mistakes, like you've just clearly and rightly pointed out, that you've got to. Look at what you've done, why it went wrong, 
who was at fault, and then try and avoid it happening again, isn't it? And as you grow, yeah. that's what it's all about, isn't it? Absolutely. I was in the city of London last week, and I saw one of the phone kiosks with all your livery on Mark, so I picked up on that because I've done some research. There's some Mark's electrical things have popped up on my screen. Now, there's a, a saying, I don't know who it's attributed to, that uh, 50% of advertising spend is wasted. It's just that you don't know which half it is. I'm just wondering, has that been a learning process, finding out which marketing spend has worked yeah. the best? Massively. I still think, Mark, it is only ever somebody's best guess. I really do. We were looked at having marketing directors and all this stuff, and I thought, you know what? All they're going to do is come to us with a plan, and we, we know that we need to separate and segregate how much you're going to spend on Google or maybe or Kelco or out of home or TV or radio. You know, you've got to work that out yourself anyway. And it, all you have to do is apply logic to everything, and that's what we do. You know, so we've not got big tiers of management in our business which will come to us and say, oh, we need to spend £5 million on this great TV campaign. And we're not going to do that and waste money like that. It's investors' money. And we have made mistakes. We've made a mistake in July last year. In fact, sorry, it was a year before, where we did £382,000 on a TV advert. And what happened was that we couldn't answer the phone quick enough. We hadn't got enough lorries. The reviews dropped from 4.8 down to 4.7. You know, it didn't go any lower than that, but it went to 4.7. And we were all mortified with that fact. So we learned a valuable lesson that we'd over-advertised on television Biggest single spend we've ever done in the history of the company. And yeah, it, worked. it drove brand awareness and it drove traffic. We weren't ready for it. So now, you know, we just think a bit more carefully. We're not going to go in and spend that level of money on one particular thing. Spread a risk across lots of all the different channels, not just listen to some clever expert telling you he knows everything about marketing. It's sort of wait for a good deal to come up and then we can be opportunistic and go in and pick the right deals with the right spend on the right level of advertising. So that's why the suppliers like spending money with us because we don't waste it and we can show them a good ROAS, a good return on advertising spending. And you show people that, then they'll think, right, okay, well, these guys know what they're doing. They do actually give us some results. They do actually investigate what they're doing. They've got metrics which back up the statement. So albeit from a lot lower level, so it's easy to come and do it when you know you're at 100 million rather than a you know a billion or more. And are there any suppliers that you don't currently deal with that you'd like to? With, with most of them, Jeremy, already okay. we're looking moving slowly into IT. We put IT categories on on the website. Only a dropship model that generates very very low revenue, probably a couple of hundred thousand since we put it on in pounds, not units. So we're just learning how we do that and we'll slowly move into it. We're not going to go charging in and buy a thousand laptops and then wonder why we're not selling them. So we're not known for that. TV's a market. We've just had a new buyer come in. So TV's an area we're really, really poor. We've not even got a 1% market share. I think we're about 0.3% market share at TV. We really want to grow that. We really are going after that this year. So that'll be an area for growth. But we're not going to be selling the £200, 32-inch TV. We want to be selling premium product, albeit a smaller market, but make sure we've got targeting the right SKUs. Yeah, we want to leave Tesco and Asda to sell in the cheap. What's your sort of ticket price in TVs going well, to be? We want to be, you know, over £500 north. I mean, really, seven or £800. You've got to actually make some profit out of these products, haven't you? And there's less trouble with selling premium product as well. 
It's better packaged, better instructions, more reliable. The consumer, when they buy the product, is more impressed when they bought it. So it's more enjoyable purchase for the consumer from start to finish. If you buy a, a modern laptop or a TV, you just plug it in, switch it on, and it's a great experience. Whereas you're buying a dishwasher or a big fridge, you need professional help, don't you? You do. And that's where our installation team, we've grown that to 30 now of actual gas and electrical installers. So we used to farm it out to third parties. In the end, it just didn't work. You've got to be in control of your own destiny. We've yep. got our own fuel tank here on site, Jeremy, which okay. is fuel crisis. But when you've got your own installers, that makes a massive difference. That's a jewel in our crown. We've got an installation team, and we started it off last August from zero, and that's just fitting integrated appliances. So a gas range cooker, a gas hob, an induction hob, integrated dishwashers, all those products are now done by ourselves. Before we had, well, all the other drivers, throat installers that all work for us are all trained in fitting American fridge freezers and then freestanding dishwashers, washing machines, washer dryers, etc. but not built-in integrated appliances. That's a different skill set. But now we've got our own installation teams, which is working really, really well. And that seals the deal with the customer. You know, whatever you spend it, it's a built-in product. Yes, you probably can fit an integrated dishwasher yourself, but particularly with like the millennials now, a lot of them probably wouldn't know one end of a screwdriver to another. And if they can pay £100 to get a, an integrated dishwasher fitted, then we're seeing a big uptake. And that's what people will do. They'll add to basket the installation because it's a lot easier to get it done professionally. If we make a mistake, something doesn't go right, we've got to come away and come back and solve the issue. Whereas you might buy the dishwasher yourself and phone up a plumbing company in London, for example, just to take that as an area for an example, get them to come out, fit, try and fit your integrated dishwasher. And they might say, oh, well, no, it's the wrong one you've ordered there, I'm afraid. You know, I thought I'd got the right one. No, sorry, you've not. So you've then got all the hassle of going back to your retailer, trying to figure out what the issues were. Whereas, you know, we talk it all through before we turn up. We want to make sure we're bringing the right product to you. You've selected the right product and make sure it goes as smoothly as possible. I think we're of a similar age, Mark. You know, when I look back to my youth. 29. Yeah, I'm just 31, yeah. Oh, good luck. I'll, I'll give away a little bit how old I am. I remember my grandmother having a mangle, right? Yeah. Do you remember one of those? I think we've just lost half our audience now. Yeah, um, sorry about that, yeah. <laughs> and as a child, we always used to sit and watch the television together, not because we liked being with one another. It was the only television in the house. Are households still going down more appliances per household? Have you any kind of data on that? Must be, must yeah. be. Well, TVs in particular. Oh, God, right? yeah. And, probably, you know, twin tubs. I mean, I remember when we had the first dishwasher, only because my dad worked for electrolytes at the time, we had this circular dishwasher, which was, I think, Something off tomorrow's world, if you remember that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did all the neighbours come round to have a look? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But joking aside, people want technology in the house. It makes it easier. It gives you more social time. It gives you more connection to the world, doesn't it? It's not uncommon to get a new television in your lounge, a new flat screen, state-of-the-art LG 65-inch or 55-inch OLED television, and then the TV that was in your lounge, that might go in maybe your bedroom or the kitchen or an open plan kitchen space. And then that TV in turn goes to one of the kids' bedrooms and so forth. And then hand me down maybe to your parents who are looking for another television or even your kids who need one for their spare room. So and dishwashers, you know, major domestic appliances, you know, it's the same thing. People want dishwashers. 
They want the latest, a decent vacuum cleaner. They want nice microwave with all the cooking programs. They want a nice hob or a nice range cooker. So there's always people wanting new products, cars, whatever it may be. We're all pretty brand-led, aren't we? And we all look for new stuff that makes your life easier. Can you just talk us through what your typical day is like? And is there anyone in the business who can challenge you? Who says, Mark, I don't think this is the right way to do it. I think we should do it that way. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. It's not unilaterally won, by the way, Jeremy. Josh challenges me all the time. Normal standard day, you wake up six-ish, look at all your reports, cup of tea, sit there, looking at the sales spark report, which tells me everything, stock holdings, what we're up in, what we're down in, whether it's by brand, you drill down it even into our model code. So but overall headline numbers like range cookers, are they up or they're down? American fridge freezers, are they up or they're down? And is it Range Master or Samsung or LG that's up or down? So you can see straight away, we've got three buyers in particular. And so I can go to them and say, you know, we all chat, we all get the same report. And it all starts circa 5 a.m., 6 a.m. And we're all talking to it. Even when the guys are on holidays, we all want to do well. We all want to achieve things. And it's good fun. And it's not difficult. You know, you're not sitting there in a meeting that goes on for ages. It's literally done in... 20 minutes or by email in between what else you might be doing and whether you're in the gym or whatever I'll, I'll go for a swim most mornings at least four mornings a week outside and that wakes me up that's the best thing I ever did it gives you a nice clear head so when you come into work you're totally focused and drilled in on what you want to do and we've seen recently increases in energy prices has that concentrated the mining consumers with the kind of appliance that they're going for are people going more for the higher rated energy yeah. efficient models yeah, and this is like a classic example, Mark, of why people always want to evolve and buy something new. So, I mean, if we had it years ago. There's always something new, and the manufacturers always design something new that means you need it. Whether you do or not, they tell you you need it. But quite often, they are right, because they've spent a lot of time R&D, on R&D, I should say, on making them a lot more energy efficient. You know, going back years ago, the chest freezers, you looked and you could actually pay. When we had quite high price rises, and people are actually becoming more aware of how a chest freezer was costing them to run in a garage. It would be quite horrified. You could actually pay for it in a couple of years by buying a new chest freezer. And as energy ratings improve and insulation ratings improve and the way they produce these products improves, people do need to keep still changing. You know, we don't want to be heating up the sky, do we? So has this perhaps helped you in that previously, you know, predominantly it's a distressed purchase whereby somebody is waiting for the appliance to break down or are they thinking, well, you know, the washing machine's still working, but let's see if I can get something a bit more energy efficient now. Yeah, well, it helps people trade up by more expensive product, Mark. I mean, there are still dishwashers available, you know, at £250, but, you know, something of that value is never going to be as good as a £500 Bosch one, for example, or a £1,000 Miller one. You know, there is a balance in the middle sometimes where probably overspending maybe, but if you're going to want a product to last 15 years, it's worth spending a lot of money on the right product, which is great to use. You enjoy using it. The pots come out gleaming. They're all nice and dry. Going back to our previous discussion, I can remember when TV remotes and centralised locking on the car were things that would never catch on. That They were just gimmicks. And of course, you yeah. couldn't survive without them today, could you? Absolutely. I mean, it's always been the same thing, like an alarm on a car. There used to be yeah. massive business with car alarms, wasn't there? Sure. You'd get yeah. one that would 
shut your electric windows if you're lucky enough to have electric windows. Well, now the car will tell you where it is. Yeah, you can even drive it out the showroom with a, <laughs> on an app, can't you? Well, yeah. What you've described is a very fast-moving business with high levels of stock turnover. You know, you're a reseller, so relatively low margins. If you make a mistake, if you get things wrong, it's painful. Can you just talk us through what experiences you've had and how you've turned them around in terms of running this business? You only learn by mistakes. For example, September 21, where tumble drives were flying out the door, we ordered loads. We ordered probably 15 containers of tumble drives of a particular supplier at okay. a really good price. You know, you couldn't normally get a disc out. We got a disc out. I thought, right, that's a great deal, that is. And we only had one other bar at the time. We discussed it and we decided, yeah, let's go for it. Gave them the orders. Anyway, we got delayed for one reason or the component issues, and it slowed down the actual delivery. We, we didn't probably keep our eye on the ball enough. And when these turned up, they actually turned up. We were expecting them to land around Christmas time, stroke middle of January, which is still a great time for tumble drives to turn up. So it was a good product to buy at the time. 15 containers, a lot of stock. Anyway, unfortunately, they didn't turn up till April time in the end. We should really have pushed them back and said, look, you've messed up here, Mr. Manufacturer. But we let them come and we thought, you know what? Sales are still going well. We can sell those. It's good stock. And then we had the heat wave last summer, didn't we? So of yeah. course, I'm now sitting on 15 containers of tumble dryers, which blocked up a lot of room for other stock to come into our warehouse. So it wasn't the money. We didn't need the money, but it was actually the space in the warehouse. And you couldn't have given them away for £100 each. So we ended up sitting on all of those all the way through till September when it started raining. So that was an error. But you learn from your errors. You know, we still managed to get out of that position only by working very hard. We all, all of us focused, looking what we're doing. I'm sure there's not a business on the planet that's not made a mistake. I said a bit earlier in the podcast that I was a bit foolish in the way that I never took on any partners, never had any private equity money or any business partners with any cash. So I've gone all the way through. When we floated the IPO, I didn't owe anybody anything, by the way. There was no partners. I think we were almost unique in that when we floated on the aim stock market. And that's because I was a bit pig-headed. And I've made a bit of an error there. And if I'd have thought about it a bit more, I would have gone to market a lot earlier when I could have done with some extra cash back then. But the whole point was I've spent 35 years building this business. I want it to be here forever within inverted commas. So let's take on some other partners, i.e. float the company, and let's see what we can do and drive it to another level. You know, to take it from nothing, cleaning cookers, to having a listed business on the stock market, almost there's a bit of almost not vanity in there as well, but it's just like, wow, this is fantastic what we can do here now. And the brand awareness that it gave us was incredible. So all of a sudden you go from being a relatively unknown retailer to becoming a lot better known online retailer. And also the quality of the people that it attracts as well. So when you've got a private business, you don't realize the benefit you get from being a listed company because people will come and work for you because you're a listed company. Firstly, for the experience. Secondly, for the bonus potentials and the old tips that they all sign up to. So it's incredible how much cash they can make as well, albeit you know, in a controlled manner. I'd say it's a major achievement and far from being, you might consider it to be a mistake not to have taken private equity money along the way. I think it's a major achievement and it marks you out as a listed company that's got to where it is 
as you say, without you owing the company, owing anybody anything and yeah. coming to the market as a founder-led business. But one thing I had noticed is there's several Smithsons in the company, from what yeah. I can see. My two sons. Is this a family business? You said you think it's going to last forever, but I'm not judging anything here. I'm just, you know, do you see it as a family business? You know, there's many great multi-generational, very successful family businesses. Some are listed and some aren't. So yeah. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. You know, we've got Jack and Ollie. I mean, they're involved in customer services, buying, you know, it's a stock procurement, making sure the right stock comes in, this running the sales team as well. So it was just me and them doing the buying before. And we've evolved from that. So it's great having your boys working with you. So, you know, it focuses my mind as well. You know, they're not sat in a position of particular power. They're not in charge of anything that would be detrimental if, let's say, any of it. So all three of us got run over by a bus, God forbid. You know, it's the company will continue to grow. And that's what I wanted to do. I never wanted to put them in the position that I was in. It was far, far too much stress. and. That was another main reason for floating, that I thought there's no way I could ever put them in that position because it's too difficult and it's literally 24-7. You're just, even on holiday, you're just thinking about it nonstop. Can you pay this bill? I can imagine. Uh, So I didn't want to put them in that position. So having a listed company, it gives you protection because you've got the right level of people, the right resource in each department, be it HR, accounts, warehousing, transport managers, so all these different areas. Whereas before, we were involved in doing it all. And, and it's too much pressure for anybody. So now we've got a fantastic business. It's very profitable. Um, we're driving it. And, we, and by the way, we do want to continue growing. And we have got plans to move to a bigger site. And we think we can get to about $250 million out of this site, Jeremy and Mark, which is in Leicester, very close to the M1, which is a fantastic position. Centre of the universe, I call it. It's five hours to Glasgow, five hours to Penzance. So we're in a great position. And we just want to grow it. I'd just like to mention that at the time of the IPO, I believe all employees were allocated shares at they that were. time. So I'm just wondering what kind of feedback have you got on extra engagement from employees and retention of staff? It helps on both those counts, Mark. It really does. A lot of people don't realise what they've been given to start with, but once it sort of sinks in, it might take them maybe you know six months to realise, oh, actually, I've got some shares here. What's not helped is the way the stock market's performed. So everyone gets probably a bit, not demoralised is, is the wrong word, but you know, you've been given... Let's go down, maybe. And it's gone down. And you think, oh, hmm. they're all sort of thinking they were going to be millionaires overnight. <laughs> no, I'm joking when I say that. Sure. It, unfortunately, it can be a bit of a kick in the teeth when you all feel like you're working your socks up and it's not actually delivered what we were all hoping, you know, because the market, there's no appetite for e-commerce so the e-commerce market dropped all the aim listed companies dropped through the floor i mean we've held our, our head up very high still because you know we're delivering results we've delivered what we said we we're going to do and we will continue to do so we want to surpass that and that's our aim every single quarter to outperform what we said we were going to do no that's absolutely right in terms of what you said you were going to do at the time of the ipo as a company you've delivered on the market hasn't helped uh, the market no. has rated nearly every particularly consumer-facing company. So it's timing, but... That's what I yeah. say, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. Our job is to ignore the share price. I won't say I'm not interested in it. Of course I am, and it would be foolish to say something like that. But I don't sit there looking at it on a weekly basis. 
I really don't. I just think, you know what, it will be whatever it will be. I can't change anything apart today. What I can change is by doing great results, delivering great results for our investors, and they'll vote with their feet. They'll either vote and come to us or they'll leave. But if we keep delivering good results, then we'll be the company to go to because that's what we will do. If things aren't going right, we'll just roll our sleeves up and work even harder. You know, you always think you're working at your max, but there's always something extra you can do. You mentioned earlier about the 15 container loads of tumble dryers, and one of the delays was due to component shortages. Is that still an ongoing issue generally, more widely among your suppliers? And have the supply chains that were all out of kilter a year or so ago, are they sorting themselves out? Yeah, they are, Jamie. I mean, it didn't help, obviously, with the Ukraine situation, which is obviously terrible. So we had all the COVID issues and component issues with semiconductors, and it was a major problem. But then what we did do, we tried to focus on other areas within the business to drive volume there and revenue there. So it has been an issue, but now it's passed by now. So there's not really any big problems with supply now. We can get virtually what we want. We've got tons of lorries parked outside today unloading now. It's not really a big issue. It, It was an issue, but it's one that has surpassed. We've talked about one of the major strengths of the business, besides yourself, Mark, of course, being the, the no, single... It's the, AI. it's the AI, it's the technology, it's not Mark. Yeah, I'm everyone up the backside to make sure they're all doing the job. But it's a single warehouse that you're not incurring costs trunking around the country. But I'm just wondering how susceptible is the business if there was some unforeseen calamity, you know, flood or fire or earthquake or something like that, with, you know, all your product fleet... An IT under one roof, how quickly could you get up and running if something like yeah. that occurred? Well, all our systems are all held on the cloud, or virtually all of them on the cloud, Mark. It's actually eight connected warehouses. We've got a disaster recovery plan. We're in talks at the minute with developers at the minute looking at a new site, which is far bigger. We've actually got a full-blown sprinkler system in this whole warehouse. So if there's a fire, God forbid, in one area, it doesn't flood the whole warehouse as it does on the films. It just sprays in that one particular area. And we know it works exactly like that, because it's actually happened when we've caught them with forklifts. So it's not an issue. Having everyone under one roof is a fantastic position to be in, and people underestimate it. It's a great position, because you can control your workforce. You can. And having all your vehicles here, all your stock here, all under one roof, it makes a massive difference. You can walk around, talk to everybody, you get the instant feeling on the shop floor, warehouse floor, whatever you want to call it, what's going on. And if we had satellite warehouses all over the country, apart from the fact they're very expensive to run, you then need tiers of management in those positions. You'd be looking at reports from them all, but you know, you can't be actually having a look, see what's going on. Because reports can hide a lot of things until you actually then you unearth them and all of a sudden you realise that there's an issue. But we can see all our issues right under our nose. And we're going to continue with a single site. We don't want any other sites. But, of course, we're always very mindful of how disaster recovery plans, you've got to keep everything forefront of your mind. The warehouse, I understand, is on a a lease basis, and you're talking about a new warehouse. Will that also be on a lease? Is that something that marks electrical alone outright? If you want to invest in property, Mark, you'll invest in property, won't you? Not pretend property investors like I would be. So, yes, the new warehouse will be on a lease basis again. But probably about triple the size. The one we're looking at is 585,000 square foot. This one's 200,000 square foot. But that one is also triple the height as well. 
So effectively, you'd have nine times the volume within that warehouse. Now, I'm not saying we'd do nine times our revenue, but it would certainly give us a lot of room for growth. And we've been building up a bit of a war chest within the company, so we're going to need quite a bit of cash when that day does arrive, you know, sooner rather than later, hopefully. But we're not going to rush to get there. But you need quite a bit of extra cash for leasehold improvements, for this, more trucks, a bit more stock. You know, there's, there's lots of things that you would require additional cash for. That's our medium-term plan. What about longer-term vision for the business? What do you think this business will look like in 10 years' time? You know, 500 million is the, uh, the medium-term target, and I suppose double it then, isn't it? You know, just keep on moving more into the IT category, moving more into the consumer electronics, definitely. I mean, there's such enormous markets. I always come back to the fact that we've got such a minute market share. That market's worth $8 billion. So you're not going to be doing anything fundamentally different? No. I keep looking over the fence, Jeremy, and saying, oh, I wish we were doing that. I wish we were doing that. You know, we've got great relationships with suppliers. Just build with them. You know, they've got new products coming out. Yeah. You can add on incrementally different suppliers. But it's all about looking at the ranges that they offer and, you know, expanding our range within their range of products that they offer. There's always new items, new SKUs coming out. So there's always new things to go at. And just keep evolving. We all make mistakes along the way. And I'm just wondering, what's the biggest that you've made in your business life, Mark? And how has it shaped you? Sometimes moving into a product category without actually understanding it enough. So TVs, there's a good example. I moved into TVs. I tried it twice, Mark. And I went, Samsung guaranteed me, this was the range. We're talking years ago. And so I went for the range. I spent £100,000, which was a, a lot of money back then. I know it's still a lot of money now, but to get to go into and buy a range of TVs. And literally none of them sold, but I didn't have the right audience. So I foolishly had gone in there and spent a lot of my available cash on buying a load of televisions that didn't suit my business model. So mm. I went into doing something that I didn't know enough about and got my hands burnt there mm. massively. Mm. The first thing is, though, to recognise a mistake as quickly as possible. Don't sit there crying over spilt milk, waiting for something to change, because it probably won't. So you need to go and clear that stock, get some money back in the bank as quickly as you can, and then go and put it into something that you're good at, which was, let's say, going and buying 500 Bosch washing machines or hot point washing machines, things that you know you can turn your money rapidly back into cash and get yourself out of the hole that you put yourself in and unwind that error. How often do we see that people actually compound a problem? You know, if you look at politics, probably the worst thing that they can do is is make a U-turn, but sometimes it's for the best, isn't it? Well, they just dig a bigger hole. Actually, I've stopped watching the television now. I can't stand lying. That's one of the things I cannot be done with. So anyone in our business knows if they lie, they are digging a massive hole. And you, I know straight away that they lie, but you try to give them a chance to get out. Put your hands up, say you've made a mistake, and get on with it. You listen to every politician under the sun every single day. They just lie and lie it's, and lie. And then eventually everybody gets sick of hearing it and they just... It's not lie. difficult, is it? The first rule of holes is when you're in one, you stop digging. I would. You know, you'd actually enjoy listening to politicians if they said, you know what, I made a mistake here. We're really sorry. We've got to do a U-turn here. And your people go, well, fair enough. At least they're not lying and lying and lying or avoiding the question, which is even more annoying. So, Mark, going to take you back in time, back to 1987. You're in your dad's garage with the caustic soda and the gas cookers. 
you see yourself, what advice would you give him? Never give in. People tell you that you can't do that. That, to me, is like adding fuel to me. People tell you that you can't do it. Lots of people said, oh, who's going to ever buy anything off you? So I just got my head down and just thought, you know what, I'm just going to work harder than everybody else. They're all clearing off at half five. I'm going to work till 10 at night, midnight, whatever it takes. I'm going to push myself and never give in. When I was 16, I cycled with a friend of mine. We built a couple of bikes each and cycled from Leicester all the way to Italy over the Alps and then back. We didn't give in. And, you know, having that spirit of things go wrong, but, you know, how you deal with them. You know, we had a punch, lots of punches, but, you know, in the middle of nowhere, no mobile phones. You know, we lived on Swiss rolls and orange juice. <laughs> it's like camps, tents and, you know, sleeping yeah. bags. So, but, you know, you can do whatever you want to do if you apply your mind to things and get stuck in. Don't give in. People tell you to, you know, you can't do that. What they mean is they can't do that. Yeah, it was like uh, Churchill said, didn't he? When you're going through hell, just keep going. Yeah, exactly right. We all make mistakes, just keep on going. It's good fun. Character building, you come out the other end, you think, you know what, all I did was work my socks off and I stayed up till midnight a couple of nights. And you know what, after that, the problem's gone. Yeah. And it's Or even the next day. The next day, you have a good night's sleep, you wake up, some nice food, you wake up the next day and you think, great. I've solved that issue and you forget all about it. And guess what? Your business becomes even stronger. Mark, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for talking to us today. I'm going to continue to follow your progress with great interest and look forward to catching up with you in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website in the company of mavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.